This is the MLW Radio Network. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Overbooked with Mike Freeland. So I do want to welcome you guys into another episode where we cover the unauthorized story of ECW. And right now we are in chapter 10. This chapter is entitled A Matter of Respect. So just to kind of let you know, as we're going along here, we're learning a lot about relationships. We're learning a lot more about characters and the personal lives of a lot of the stars in ECW and kind of how this whole thing kind of weaves together. So in chapter 10, we're going to find out uh, some new characters. We're going to find out a little bit about them. We're going to find out a little bit more about uh, what Paul's vision was heading into this second phase of ECW. Keep in mind, you know, they lost a lot of ECW stars as we talked about to bigger money. And so we're going to find out here in chapter 10 what exactly is happening. What is the next phase and how is Paul going to handle this? So in chapter 10, there was a lot of turmoil going into early 1996. But Paul was still back at it trying to work on his projects. As we talked about before, Paul always had projects he was working on. Paul, One of Paul's projects was Mikey Whipwreck. Another project was The Public Enemy. So Paul was definitely one of those guys who looked at a talent and was trying to find ways to get them over with the audience. And Paul was really good at doing that. You know, a lot of ECW talent had said, Paul was a mastermind behind really accentuating what your talent is and hiding uh, what may be considered some deficiencies. So Paul's next project was a was a guy that went by the name of Taz. Now, if you only know Taz from his WWE years, um, you're really not getting the full breadth of who Taz really was. To really understand how good Taz was, you really need to go back to the years of ECW. Taz was doing things um, just at a feverish pace inside the ring. You know, they call him the human suplex machine, and, and there's a reason for that, too. His athletic abilities was really unmatched at that time, and, you know, Paul really wanted to take Taz and make him one of his top guys. So in 1996, one of uh, Paul's most successful projects was Taz. Uh, Heyman took a shorter, stocky man uh, who originally came out as a wild man gimmick. And Paul decided, you know what, this isn't going to work. We need to go ahead and make some changes. So Paul went went and uh, he took Taz, took him off of TV, and then started to work on his new character, which was going to be more of a shoot fighter character. So this is really what brings the legitimacy to, I guess, fans' perspectives of what ECW was. Because I believe a lot of people, including myself, we looked at ECW as kind of this no-holds-barred, rebellious fight club type of promotion where it wasn't the same in WWE and WCW where it was more character-driven. It was, you know, it was really also geared more towards children, where ECW was definitely MATV. It was definitely not intended for a younger audience, which we're going to get into as well when we find out the difficulties that WCW and WWE didn't have with programming, but ECW definitely did. So Taz was injured. He had a neck injury, and he went and did some color commentary. 
Uh, and when he came back from the neck injury and he was doing color commentary until he got cleared to wrestle, this was actually the first time Taz actually was behind the microphone. And the whole concept of repackaging, repackaging Taz was the fact that they wanted to make him this bruiser, this fighter, this, this ultimate type of fighting machine. And there's a reason why for that as well. Um, back in 1993, the UFC, which was known as the Ultimate Fighting Championship, was actually just getting underway. And Paul wanted to try to bring some of that believability into the world of wrestling, but you had to have a character that looked the part, had that collegiate look, had that young look, had that, that correct build. And Paul picked Taz to be the guy who was going to do it. So he wanted to make him uh, an ultimate fighting machine, and uh, he decided that he was just going to throw people at Taz and have Taz just kind of run through them and just kind of take them apart. So in February of 1996, there was a show in Queens, New York, and Taz called out, I'd like to say, a, a fairly long-running ECW uh, alum. His name was 911. And basically what had happened was 911 and Paul had a falling out. And from what I'm also understanding by this chapter, 911 was in charge of the ring crew. And there had been some discrepancies behind what was going on with the ring crew. Um, so one of the last jobs that 911 did was he went out there and he was he was really looked at as an intimidating force inside of ECW, and uh, and Taz just basically ate him up. And it was really, really interesting to find out, you know, what exactly happened? What was the actual beef with Paul and 911? You know, the chapter does talk about the ring crew situation and how he wasn't very happy with it, but what was really the story behind that? So we're going to have to find out a little bit more about that. Um, the relationship between Taz and Paul was was strong, um, and I think even to this day, you know, Taz will always defend Paul. And I think Paul will always go to bat for Taz. And one reason why Taz was so loyal to Paul was because when Taz broke his neck, you know, Paul continued to pay Taz. And even though he wasn't working, and he kept him on the payroll. And that meant a lot to Taz. And I think that that would mean a lot to anybody, especially in the world of wrestling where, you know, paydays aren't guaranteed and, you know, when you're on the shelf, you know, it's almost like next man up. Someone else is, is going to come around and take your spot. So, Taz was also starting to, at this time, after he uh, finished up with 911, start building a rivalry uh, with a guy who, who used to be tag team partners with, and that was Sabu. And uh, it really kind of epitomized what ECW was and as far as their feuds would go. But Taz wasn't just a guy who, you know, did some color commentary during an injury or was this wrecking machine in the ring. You know, Taz began to understand because of Paul's need to diversify some of the responsibilities inside of ECW. You know, Paul couldn't do it all. So Taz actually is an artist, and Taz actually was working in the merchandise department as well within inside ECW. And he started to create and design all the merchandise that would be sold at events and that eventually would be sold online as well. Uh, he would did, do the graphic designs for that. So I think that was really interesting. So if you see a Taz shirt from those those early years when with ECW when he was there, uh, most likely he was the one who kind of came up with that. And the other thing that Paul wanted to do was 
Paul didn't have his own training facility, per se, to start grooming the next crop of ECW stars. You know, Paul basically had to rely on his connections and people he knew, people that maybe were not getting a fair shake in either WWE or um, WCW, and then kind of bring them in and work with them and create, you know, a star based upon his vision. Well, Paul decided that he wanted to go ahead and create uh, a training school, an ECW training school, and he proposed the idea to Taz and said, you know what, there's only one guy I can think of that I would really like to have as being the lead trainer, and that was Taz. So Taz became the first instructor. Well, the first graduating class, uh, Taz's cousin, Chris Chetty, who a lot of people obviously know from the ECW days. Some people may or may not know that they are cousins, um, but he worked with Chris Chetty, and obviously that helped Chris obviously get his foot in the door. Um, but the big thing that was happening also is that, you know, whether it was a public enemy or whether it was, like I said, Mikey Whipwreck or some of the other stars in ECW, you know, he realized that not only single stars, like the project he was working on with Taz, which got over really well with the audience, was he really needed to start implementing new tag teams. And I think that's really one of the things that Paul did very, very well. I mean, when you think about what he what he did with the public enemy, and they got over hugely. Um, Paul decided, you know what, you know, caught lightning in a, in a bottle the first time, maybe we can go ahead and we can do it again. So Paul saw two different guys, and he really started to invest in them. And those two people were Perry Saturn and John Cronus. And obviously you probably know them as the Eliminators. Well, to give you a little backstory on the Eliminators, they were actually... Um, they trained with Killer Kowalski, and they had been spending some time in the Memphis territories, and they were trying to obviously, you know, perfect uh, their version of tag team wrestling, but, you know, they really weren't making a whole lot of money, they really weren't getting much of a push, and it was getting kind of old. You know, a lot of wrestlers you'll hear, they travel, they go up and down the roads, they never really find a place to, to call home and to really get that momentum push that they want. So Perry and John put together a tape of their matches that they were doing in Memphis and other areas. They were bouncing around in and sent it to Paul Heyman. Well, Paul really liked what he saw, and um, he called him up, and he wanted the uh, Eliminators, which they became that, to come up to ECW. And another big thing that, that Paul was trying to do was, you know, he talked to Joey Styles because Joey was the voice of ECW. And the funny thing about the announcers, and you'll realize this with like a Jim Ross, and you'll realize this with, you know, a Michael Cole or, you know, fill in the blank. The announcers are such an integral part of wrestling. You know, as much as we talk about the the wrestlers themselves, and, you know, we don't give enough credit sometimes to the stories and the emotions that the announcers are able to elicit from the audience. Joey Styles was one of those unique guys who knew exactly what to say, when to say it, with what emotion, and it made it feel real, raw, and surreal. And, you know, Paul worked with Joey and said, hey, we need to start having these guys referred to on TV as the greatest tag team. And so that's what they started to do. And they started to believe in that as well. And 
the Eliminator's confidence started building and building and building. And the one thing that Paul, like I said before, did really well was, from a technical standpoint, you know, maybe Eliminators weren't the greatest from that aspect, but he did know that they could do some really good double-team high-impact moves. So that's what Paul really wanted them to do. And total elimination was a big move that they would do. And I think when you when you look back at ECW and you think of Perry Saturn, you think of uh, you know Cronus, you think of total elimination and how many people took it and how it got over with the audience. So Paul knew that you know what, as far as just grappling was concerned, that might not necessarily have been their forte. But anytime you could get the two of them in there together. You know, and do a devastating move on an opponent. That's what the audience wants to see, and they got over big time. Now, the interesting thing about the Eliminators, and this is kind of getting into how wrestling is so interwoven together, and how everyone is in some way connected to each other. The Eliminators joining ECW opened the door for another person to come into ECW. And this individual would become a promoter for ECW, would work with Paul, and would start to kind of help expand ECW into an area in the Northeast that they really hadn't been doing a whole lot of business there. And so that area uh, was going to be the New England states. So a guy came in, and his name was Paul Richard. Now, as far as the history of ECW, some of you may have heard of Paul Richard before, some of you may not have. I would probably say, and this is no disrespect to uh, Mr. Richard, but you probably don't hear about his contribution to ECW a whole lot, but it was pretty big. So what had happened was Paul actually had been working for his father, and there was a promotion that was up in the New England States called International Championship Wrestling. And it was, like I said, based in, in New England. It was ICW. So what happened was, uh, Mr. Richard, just because Heyman and this guy are both named Paul, I think it'd be easier. Mr. Richard uh, did the, the promotions for his father's territory. Well, when his father's territory ended up closing up in 1996, he was looking for some work. He was very successful with working with his father and building a relationship up with wrestlers. So he went ahead and he called Perry Saturn and said, hey man, he said, you know, my dad's promotion has just closed up. Is there anything that, any connections you have, anything you, you think that I could get involved in? Well, Perry knew him, and so did Paul, and I believe so did Tommy Dreamer as well, because ICW was a promotion where Paul got his first shot at being a booker, and Tommy worked up there, and you know Perry Saturn worked up there, and a lot of other guys who became ECW staples before ECW became something, uh, worked many different Northeast promotions. So there was that, that six degrees of, uh, of Kevin Bacon I was talking about. So Heyman sat down with him and said, hey, you know, what would you like to do? You know, how would you like to work within the ECW brand? What do you think you could do? And he basically said, hey, look, you know, I could do the same thing I did for my dad's company, but I could do it for ECW and start promoting you guys in the New England states, you know, getting you guys radio time, getting you guys TV interviews, and I'm going to do everything I can to get you guys on TV up there. Well, that really appealed to Paul, and Paul was all for it. So, and Paul hired him, and it was interesting because 
right off the bat, he started, you know, building up relationships with these different TV stations and saying, hey, I'd like to, you know, give you a sample tape of what ECW is. Well, that turned out to be one of the more difficult avenues as far as ECW was concerned. And the reason why was because ECW, especially in the Northeast, was viewed as as such a violent uh, form of wrestling. You know, it wasn't your typical WWE type of wrestling, which wasn't considered controversial, wasn't considered offensive. Uh, it was it was pretty neutral. But ECW, like I said before, they had the language issues, uh, they had the violence, they did push the racy line, obviously with the ladies as well, and. There was television stations who really didn't want to carry ECW. And it was kind of frustrating. And, you know, Heyman was trying to find a way. You know, what else can we do? Well, Paul decided, you know what? I want to go ahead and let's reach out to Spanish Channel Univision. And that'll be, it'll be interesting there because at that time in 1996, Univision was trying to get going and they were selling their slots on TV fairly inexpensively. So what Paul decided to do was invest in a time slot with Univision. They didn't have an issue per se with ECW. So they got in on a time slot with them. It was fairly inexpensive. They don't really go into great detail as far as the the cost and whatnot. But they were put on a late night slot, uh, Fridays and Saturdays. And um, it kind of started to branch out the market for ECW. And it worked out well, too, because Univision's demographics were pretty much in line with what ECW was. And it started to work. Um, It was one of those things where when you look back at it, you know, ECW was trying to do anything they could just to keep afloat. You think about it from this perspective. 1996, WWE was down. They were still in that rebuilding years. You really wouldn't see... WWE get hot again till I guess late 97, 98, 99. And obviously WCW would start to pick up momentum in 96, but it was really 97, 98, and 99 that they got really hot. So Paul realized here and now that, man, there's a lot of places that are going to stay away from ECW, but if we can find some outlet that will carry our program, it'll work. And if you remember, we talked about this in a prior chapter, but, you know, the two producers who worked so hard on ECW putting it together, Ron uh, Buffon and uh, Charlie Bruise, they were so integral in putting packages together and then obviously getting them sent up to the television station and putting it out there. And it was the packages that they created that really started to create that buzz that really started to draw people in. And you got to think about it, you know, Univision wasn't in the United States, especially in the Northeast, all that prominent at that time. But you know what? ECW got in on the ground floor between Paul Richards, Charlie Bruise, and Ron Buffone. They really put a lot of work into the ECW brand itself, and it was good. I mean, you know, when we talk about packages now, I think a lot of people look at the WWE today in 2020 and they go, man, they did or still do an amazing job with their packages when it comes to 
either the hype or the buildup of a match or a pay-per-view, especially when you have big events like a WrestleMania or a Survivor Series. But, you know, these guys were doing it with limited technology back in 1996. And it really had that gritty, edgy feel to it. And it drew a lot of people in. And it really was successful. So, as I mentioned before, Paul Richard was very instrumental in exposure for ECW at this time. So, what he would do was, like I said, he used his connections, obviously, from working in his father's promotion. He would get uh, radio interviews for ECW wrestlers and uh, public appearances. And there was a lot of them that they would have. And here's a, an excerpt from the book. It says, we'd have the Sandman pulling into a parking lot for an appearance in a Hummer with his music playing. Richard says, we had them singing in the mall with Shane Douglas and a thousand people turned up. I had 15 years worth of connections in the area and I used them all. I'd see Paul Heyman at shows and give him bags of articles that were written about ECW. We really did build it up to what it was going to be. And that's awesome. You know, when you think about marketing is such an integral part when it comes to wrestling. If you've ever watched any independent wrestling documentaries, you're going to see a lot of promoters who are in their car and they go and, you know, they're stapling you know, flyers to telephone poles that they're asking businesses, hey, can I stick a flyer in here? And basically, ECW was one of those everybody wears multiple hats type of promotion. You know, the phrase, you know, wrestling family, I feel like sometimes gets overused. And I think a lot of times people say this, and I've talked to Jerry and Mikey about this, and yes, wrestling is a family. You know, there is a brotherhood amongst the wrestlers, male and female. And they, they do look out for each other. You know, but it's also one of those things where it is a business. And everybody is looking to do the best they can for themselves to profit the most in a fairly short amount of time. Because when you look at the average lifespan of a professional wrestler, your money-making years, it's a very short window. So yes, it is a family. Yes, there is camaraderie. But do not be mistaken, just like any other business, everyone is looking after their own bottom line and really wanting to succeed. But there was aspects of ECW, even back in 1996, that you started to realize that it was special and it was different. And a lot of locker rooms, guys were, were in for themselves, you know. But ECW, everybody was hanging around the monitors at the time. Everybody was watching each other's matches they were, you know, basically challenging each other to who could have the best match that night, who could steal the show, and it was a camaraderie and it was a competitive environment, but it was it was friendly for the most part. And ECW, you know, Mikey and Jerry talk about this a lot. It was just different. It really was. It wasn't big corporate like you would find with Ted Turner's WCW. It wasn't like Vince McMahon's WWE. It was very much more homegrown, more everybody's in it to win it because everybody had to do a lot of other things, whether it was setting up chairs or collecting tickets or what Taz was doing as far as doing the merchandising. So and Tommy Dreamer became very, very involved with backstage stuff as well when Paul couldn't be at shows. So everybody was invested in a different part of the business and wanted to see it succeed. I thought an interesting part that I was reading here before, you know, not only talking about the culture of ECW and the backstage of ECW, but even when things don't go so great, they really ra rallied around each other. Uh, Danny Doring's mom had passed away. 
um, and it was back in 1999 at an ECW arena show, and all the wrestlers, when they found out, went up to Danny and you know wanted to support him and show condolences, and they actually passed around a collection plate to start helping Danny find a way to pay for the final expenses, and it was incredible. It was incredible. I mean, to know that people care enough and have enough respect for you, especially in a very, very dark time in your life, just the gesture meant a lot. So it just kind of basically tells you how important the camaraderie was in a smaller company because you almost had to be. You know, if you weren't, if it was egos running wild, there's no way ECW would have succeeded. You know, everyone has to pull for each other for the whole thing to work, especially when you're going against two big sharks like WWE and WCW. So as I mentioned earlier, in 1993, a new form of sport uh, kind of came into play, and that was the UFC, the Ultimate Fighting Championship. And it was, you know, your basic combat sport where competitors of different genres of uh, fighting styles would all come together and culminate in these tournaments to find out who was going to be the ultimate fighter. Well, Paul once again realized that that was going to become a hot thing. That's what led to once Taz got injured and broke his neck, they brought him back, they repackaged him um, from the Tasmaniac into Taz, the human suplex machine. They put him in the collegiate singlet and that was kind of their response to the creation of the UFC, which I thought was really, really cool. Now, Paul also went ahead and tried to capitalize on the star power of UFC because when it started, you know, you got to keep in mind it was not allowed in every single state just because of its brutality. So one thing that Paul realized that he needed to do pretty quickly was to solidify the character of Taz as being this you know, ultimate fighting type of character, he needed to bring somebody in from the UFC that had gotten some exposure, and then Taz would go ahead and take him out. So they brought in a guy by the name of Paul Varlins, and I hope I'm pronouncing his name right. He was known as the Polar Bear. Now, he was, you know, kind of a middle-of-the-card type of guy as far as UFC was concerned. He was six foot eight, and he was 340 pounds. Now, to look at this guy, he was a, an intimidating uh, presence right here. And he had a fighter's pedigree. So Paul came up to, to him and said, hey, you know, we'd like to bring you in. This is what we'd like to do. And, and you know, you're going to have a match with Taz. And, you know, Taz is going to go over whatever. Well, like many stories with Paul Heyman, there seems to always be this level of, did he say this? Did he not say this? Did he say this to one person? Did he not say this to one person? So this is where things got a little more confusing. So Heyman negotiated with him to come into the ECW arena. Now, they were setting the stage for the June 1st show in 1996 um, when Taz would go out to the ring and he demanded competition. You know, after beating guys, Joey Styles went in and said, you know what, there is somebody who would like to fight you. And people were excited because they thought Joey was referring to Sabu to come out because they had been building a feud between the two of them. Well, Joey then points to the front row, and you've probably guessed it, he stands up, the polar bear. So obviously they start going after each other. They had to have a pull apart. Taz then starts yelling out, UFC sucks. And 
Varlins calls Taz a little boy. So, I don't know. It's just one of these deals where, you know, I think a lot of people started seeing ECW as being more reality-based and, and blurring the lines of what was part of the show and what was real. So, in addition to having a, I guess, former, even current, I guess, UFC fighter, depending on the way you, you want to look at it here, Paul also decided to bring in another person. Uh, once again, this was both of these choices for booking people outside of wrestling was to try to create a buzz for ECW. So the other woman they brought in was a prostitute named Divine Brown. Now, obviously, she was known back in the time for being the prostitute that movie star Hugh Grant was caught having world sex with in his car. So the whole goal of this was obviously to capitalize on what mainstream media was talking about, pay her, bring her in, and see if it could draw a little bit more attention. We got the UFC angle going, you know, what else can we do here? Things got a little weird because um, I I don't know if, if this is even allowed to be done or whatever, but Divine's role on the show was to be Stevie Richards' offering to Raven, who had been looking for the scummiest, smuttiest woman to find as a reaction to Beulah leaving him for Tommy Dreamer. So, to make sure that the fans were enjoying themselves on this show, Paul Heyman then went ahead and made an announcement that Divine Brown would be giving blowjobs to everyone in the crowd if the show was a disappointment. Naturally, when one of the night's main events continued to drag on, fans of the ECW arena started chanting, Where's our blowjobs? Yeah... I think that was a little a little weird. I don't think I've ever heard of a situation like that before. But once again, it is wrestling. So as they were building up Taz, they were building up this former slash current UFC fighter, Varlins. They, uh, they had their final battle at June 22nd's Hardcore Heaven, 1996. We're, it's interesting because fans still argue today whether it was a work or a shoot. You know, we often talk about what's real and what's not. When are the lines blurred? You know, a lot of people even today are talking about was the Montreal screw job an ultimate work or a shoot? But once again, those are things that can be debated uh, amongst inner circles of wrestling fans. So in one of the weirdest things before, see, the original plan was to have the Varlings to take a dive for Taz to further establish Taz as a legitimate tough guy. All right. So that was the original plan. Now, whether Heyman told Varlins, that exactly is a matter of opinion, although many people close to Heyman believe that he played upon Varlins' desire to be a pro wrestler. So, we don't really know whether or not Paul told him that he was going to put Taz over, or the fact that they were just going to put him out there and kind of see what happens. Um, Heyman later said Varlins knew that the plan was from the start, Meaning, you're going to go out there, Taz is going to beat you up, and we're going to solidify Taz. Varlings had admitted to Paul that he definitely wanted to be a pro wrestler. He didn't want to be in UFC anymore. And I guess Varlings came across to Paul as a mark, so Paul realized, hey, you know, we could use this guy, and, you know, let's let's see where it goes. Maybe we can talk to him about maybe coming into ECW, but, you know, there was nothing that was 
really stated specifically in this chapter. So in the world of he said, she said, uh, it was kind of confusing here on who was going to do what. So people originally believed backstage that Varlene's was going to go ahead and put Taz over. He knew he was going to take the dive. Then there's this second contingent that Varlene's maybe wasn't going to take the dive. Well, ultimately Varlene's decided he was going to go out there and do the job for Taz, but Paul backstage wasn't really sure if that was going to happen. Paul was a little nervous about that because, you know, obviously Taz was saying a lot of different things about UFC and I think if you're a fighter and you hear somebody outside of the fighting game who is saying some things, you know, it's going to ruffle your feathers. It's going to it's going to upset you to a certain extent. Well, this is kind of how everything started. So the in-ring spectacle started with a tirade from Bill Alfonso, who at that time was now Taz's manager. Fans started chanting, shut the fuck up, as Styles described the fans politely, asking Alfonso to return the microphone to the ring stand. Now Taz and Varlene's grappled for a few seconds, with neither guy really doing anything to each other. It appeared as willing as Varlene's was, he was getting antsy about whether he should actually shoot on Taz or he should do the job. Well, it's interesting that he was starting to have second thoughts on what was actually going to be happening in this match because so did the ECW locker room. So just to make sure that things went according to planned, they went ahead and they kind of did a swerve on him. So Saturn came out and hit him with a drop kick in the head that from what everybody says who was there, it was one of the most devastating Taz from there went ahead and finished him off. So, you know, I think it's one of those situations where, you know, Paul didn't want to take any risks on this. Now, whether Paul will admit that he was a part of the sending Perry Saturn out to go ahead and take him out and then have Taz finish him off, I don't know. But it made it more compelling than both of those guys just kind of squaring off, not really doing a whole lot. Also, Varlings didn't know how to wrestle in the ring. So you're already taking somebody who is not really comfortable in the ring, not really knowing what they're supposed to do. Um, You know, you got to add somewhat of more of a wrestling flair to it because if not, then this could have gone really, really bad. So as we talked about earlier, you know, Paul was trying to build up a Taz Sabu feud right here, and it was kind of a slow buildup. But the goal was to build him up to the next pay-per-view. Well, while this is going on, a build-up between Taz and Sabu, another guy would uh, make his way into ECW. You might have heard of him. He uh, won an Olympic gold medal in 1996. Yep, Kurt Angle. So Paul Heyman reached out to Kurt. Uh, Kurt had actually shown some interest, and he brought him in to a show. Well, as we all know the story, Kurt Angle had won a... Gold medal with a severely injured uh, vertebrae in his neck, and it really kind of solidified him as being a tough guy, which Paul also realized would fit really well in with ECW as far as guys just being willing to, to go the extra mile here. So when he brought him into the ECW event on October 26, called High Incident, it, uh, it featured some pretty uh, shaky angles in the ring. But the biggest one was the fact that that was the night that the Sandman was crucified on a cross that he also built uh, by Raven, and Angle freaked out, and he basically said he wanted nothing to do with the promotion at this point in time, and that if 
His face was shown on the pay-per-view itself. It ever made it to public consumption that he would sue. And um, that's it. That was the one and only time that Kurt Angle and, and Paul Heyman would cross paths in 1996. Obviously, we know subsequently they would cross paths in the WWE, but that is a little bit different. That spectacle has been talked about so much and might even be something that we go into greater detail with when we talk about uh, ECW-specific moments even a little bit further, but ECW fans didn't even know how to respond to it. You know, fans that had been so hardcore and they had seen some of the most extreme and violent things that wrestling could offer, even this was going too far. In a quote from the book, ECW, uh, longtime legendary fan, uh, hat guy, John Bailey, says, and I quote, I thought they took the line too far. They crossed it with the crucifixion angle. So it just kind of gives you an idea of, you know what, that can be extreme, that can be hardcore. We can say and do a lot of different things, but there are some things that definitely should be off limits. So Heyman, who was backstage freaking out, Kurt Angle is upset with him, you know, in a way to... And this is my assumption and guess, try to save face and, and maybe try to salvage something with Kurt, um, sent Raven, who is Scott Levy, back out to apologize to the audience. And Raven vehemently disagreed with it. He did not think it was a good idea. It was out of Raven's character to go out and apologize, but he did it anyway. Raven even admits that when he went out, he apologized, but it was very insincere. He didn't feel like it was something that was necessary, but... I mean, at the end of the day, it will go down as one of the worst angles, even though it's one of the most well-known angles, but one of the, the worst angles uh, wrestling could have produced at that time. So, man, it was, it was different. It was really, really different. Uh, ECW in 1996. So we find out, you know, a little bit more about Taz going from the Tasmaniac to the human suplexing machine, we find out that Paul wanted to go ahead and uh, kind of capitalize on what UFC was doing, bring in a former UFC guy, have him battle with Taz. We also found out that ECW was trying to grow in the Northeast, especially in the New England states. You know, they brought another person in. They had connections with a former promotion, ICW. He starts to promote. They get on Univision. And, you know, really things start taking off for them. But it's interesting because Paul continues to reinvent himself. He continues to reinvent what the ECW product is. And say what you want for Paul Heyman. As I'm reading this book, the one thing I'm realizing more than anything else is Paul continues. He doesn't stop. You know, I think a lot of promotions, if they had lost, you know, their main guy or several of their main talent, would, would probably become very discouraged by that. But Paul continued to find new ways to harvest new talent, grow new talent. You know, he repackaged Taz. He had the feud going with Sabu. You know, obviously Rob Van Dam had just hit the scene. Paul decided that he also wanted to start up the House of Hardcore school, uh, which was ECW's training ground. We're going to talk more about that as well. We have talked about the school itself. Mikey worked at the school as well. So maybe we'll do a little uh, a deep dive on that as well. But that is Chapter 10. I hope you guys enjoyed it. There was a lot of different things that we kind of talked about in this. The uh, the connections that wrestling has with each other is, is fascinating. You know, everybody somehow knows somebody else from working with them. So, you know, I, I think that's a big reason why they never want to burn bridges in wrestling because you never know when you're going to need to call on somebody you might have worked with in the past. 
All right, guys, that's going to do it. Um, I've taken up enough of your time so far. I do apologize if you've been hearing some thunder and some rain or whatnot. We're getting some pretty good storms here where I'm at. So once again, do apologize for that. Do not forget, big episode coming up on Wednesday with Front Row Material. Obviously, subsequently, we're going to have a big episode of The False Finish coming up on Friday as well. All right, that's going to do it. Like I said, have a great rest of your Monday, and uh, we will catch you next time on Overbooked. The world of NLW Radio never stops.